This program is brought to you by the Practicing Law Institute, a nonprofit learning organization dedicated to keeping attorneys, professionals, and accountants at the forefront of knowledge and expertise. One of the most talked about television shows in the securities enforcement world over the past decade, Showtime's Billions follows hedge fund titan Bobby Axelrod and the team of prosecutors set out to investigate him, led by Chuck Rhodes. To kick off our discussion of the show on today's episode, we are bringing you a table read from the pilot episode of the series, featuring Chuck's negotiations with a convicted inside trader that features a surprise guest. Library, U.S. Attorney's Office. Chuck enters. It's an imposing setting for a meeting. Law books, case studies, hundred-year-old leather chairs. Two men await him. They stand as he enters. One, Skip Wolkowska, is mid-fifties, a little sheepish, despite a $10,000 suit and haircut to match. The other is his short, bald attorney. Then a third man, older, facing the other way, stands. Chuck's eyes immediately go to the older man, who is late 60s and hasn't had a sheepish moment in his life. Thank you for agreeing to see us. What the f*** are you doing here, Dad? Trying to get me disbarred? The older man, Charles Rhodes Sr., does not look cowed. Christ, you're more dramatic than your mother. Some men would be cut by this. Chuck laughs. (laughs) Chuck Sr. does too. The attorney does not. We're not breaking any rules or regulations. Mr. Rhodes is not being compensated to appear with us. I know how careful he is, and why you brought him. But believe me, it's already backfired. Hear us out, Chuck. Skip knows he did wrong. Now that he's been convicted, he knows. But when he had the chance to settle... That's in the past. Right now, we're trying to set up a situation that will allow Skip to demonstrate his reformation and for him to contribute to society. By what? Let me guess. My office allowing him to keep some small portion of his ill-gotten gains? Five million? We were going to ask for ten. Which represents a fraction of the... Chuck glances to Wolkowska. Uh-huh. And that way, without having to worry about supporting yourself upon leaving prison, you could get right to doing charitable works and warning your buddies about the pitfalls of being a bad actor. Exactly. That sounds reasonable. It's the type of deal that's been made in this library countless times. Wolkowska gets hopeful, trades a look with Senior. By my predecessors, but not by me. Chuck turns to Wolkowska. You thought bringing my father would afford you some kind of courtesy? Not at all, no. But you miscalculated. Badly. Instead of using my father, you should have emulated him and built your fortune without f***ing up. You didn't. So your cronies are going to see that they better not trade on inside information or abuse their positions, or they'll end up like you. Broke. Humiliated. Which is why you'll be closer to ten cents than ten million when I'm done with you. Wolkowska begins to cry. I'm not prepared for this. I can't. Please, Chuck. This was about leniency. Have some mercy. 
When Chuck answers, he looks directly at Charles Sr. <laughs> My father always taught me that mercy was a word used when they couldn't take the pain. Wolkowska absorbs it. Senior shakes his head. Maybe I taught you too well. I love you, Dad. But if you walk into my office and try to use your influence again, you'll walk out of here in handcuffs. Then Chuck turns to Wolkowska and softens his tone. Mr. Wolkowska, I've known many men in your position, and I can tell that you have the strength to get through it and come out on the other side a better man. I wish you well. You can see yourselves out. And scene. We couldn't resist the go at acting after finding a rough draft of the script for the pilot online. And many might wonder how Billions gets it right when it comes to the nuance and specificity of securities issues. In fact, the show utilizes an expert consultant during production and while filming on set to help make sense of thorny legal aspects that arise in Chuck Rhodes' pursuit of Bobby Axelrod. We're lucky to be joined by that expert today on Insecurities. <laughs> I think that was a great read. Anybody want to go back and do it again? Or? Hello, and welcome to the Insecurities Podcast helping you stay current on the latest securities, regulatory, and enforcement developments with a practitioner's perspective on the stories you should be following. As always, I'm Chris Ekimoff, and I'm here with my co-host, Kurt Wolf. It's good to be with you, senior. I mean, Chris. <laughs> <laughs> All right. So as we mentioned up top, we are fortunate to have with us a consultant from the hit drama Billions. Uh, as you may know, Billions is a show all about a, a hedge fund manager and the prosecutors uh, that pursue him. And in order for that story to make sense, the writers have to do some some research. And so they have hired a consultant to help them with the show to make sure that it makes sense and is accessible to all the viewers at home. We have that gentleman with us today. His name is David Miller. David is currently a shareholder at the law firm Greenberg Traurig, where his practice focuses on white collar criminal defense, securities and commodities enforcement, and cryptocurrency, cybersecurity, anti-money laundering, and national security matters. David previously served for five years as an assistant U.S. attorney in the Southern District of New York, where he was a member of the Securities and Commodities Fraud Task Force. He also served as a terrorism prosecutor with DOJ in Washington, D.C., as a special assistant U.S. attorney in the Eastern District of Virginia, and as an assistant general counsel for the CIA. In those roles, David handled many high-profile white-collar insider trading, offering fraud, Ponzi schemes, valuation fraud, and accounting fraud prosecutions. Among other things, he was part of the SDNY's Operation Perfect Hedge, which secured more than 80 insider trading convictions. David also prosecuted several high-profile terrorism cases, and when he was at CIA, was the CIA legal representative to the prosecution team in the Scooter Libby case. Now, among his other responsibilities, David is a technical advisor for the popular Showtime series Billions. And rumor has it, he's even appeared as an extra in several episodes. David, we are thrilled to have you with us. Welcome to Insecurities. Thanks very much. Thanks, Kurt. Thanks, Chris. It's a pleasure to be here. Appreciate it.
Yeah, David, we, we've been excited for this episode for a long time. Kurt and I are both, uh, you know, appointment viewers of, of Billions and, and appreciate your work. Although I have to say, I cannot recall you as an extra, but uh, on a rewatch, we'll be sure to to highlight those scenes for our viewers. Uh, and Sounds we're excited, really excited to talk about the show today, as well as, you know, your storied career. Kurt did a, a great job profiling that up top. But for fans of the show Billions, we've got bad news. We will not be sharing any spoilers or, uh, or unaired plot lines in the upcoming nope. seasons. No uh, way. Yeah. You know, if you thought NDAs in the legal world were tight, I think Hollywood has uh, has the one up on that. So we'll be sure to, to toe the line appropriately. But uh, to kick us off, David, we want to talk about, you know, a lot of the roles that you've served in. You know, you've been a prosecutor in Washington, as well as the so-called Sovereign District. That's the Southern District of New York. And and that gets into kind of that connection to the television series. But you've come, come on to Billions and Consulted beginning with season two. Uh, up through and the current seasons, both uh, you know in the can and in production. Uh, so we'll talk a bit about your role there and some of our our more favorite moments of of those seasons that have already aired. And then finally, we're going to pepper you with some questions about the show in our lightning round, based on your experience and maybe some of your preferences related to the conduct and the characters on the show. So we hope, David, you're you're excited as as we are for today's episode. Absolutely, very excited. Again, thanks for having me. You got it. So, I mean, NYU Law and came right out of school and, and got into private practice uh, for the first few years of your career. But as Kurt mentioned, you've served in a couple of interesting uh, governmental roles. So what had you make the jump from private practice to, to government service back in 2005 when you joined up with the CIA? Yeah, that's a good question. So um, as you noted, when I uh, left NYU Law School, I actually worked for two different law firms. First, the now defunct law firm of Dewey Ballantyne, and then I uh, went to a mid-sized firm that merged into a Melvin and Myers. Um, starting uh, after 9-11, I started thinking more about public service um, and what I could do you know, with my background and skill set uh, to try to step up and do something for the country. I had always sort of been interested in the Central Intelligence Agency for a variety of reasons, and ultimately went through a full application process and as anybody who can tell you who's been through the CIA application process, it is not brief and it is not for the faint of heart. <laughs> yeah, I can't imagine. Anyway, so that, that's what motivated me to, to as I said, to, to get involved in, in uh, public service and ultimately got the appointment at CIA and uh, moved down to Washington at the beginning of 2005, right at the beginning of President Bush's second term and worked for the agency uh, beginning uh, in March of 2005. And you served in dual roles as well, if that's correct. Uh, also in, in the Eastern District of Virginia as an assistant U.S. attorney. So uh, it seems like you've got a lot of a lot of interesting stories from back in the mid 2000s. You know, you touched on 9-11 and a lot of the focus in that time period was on terrorism or, or anti-terrorism issues and the global war uh, on terror going on at that point. Uh, but you also got to play uh, a role in, in terms of one of the more headline trials of the time, the Scooter Libby case. You know, we don't want you to disclose anything confidential, but talk to us about some of the issues that you were dealing with in, in your dual roles back during that time period. Sure. Happy to do that. Um, so when I joined CIA, I, I basically was responsible for handling the agencies. Uh, civil and criminal litigation docket, along with other lawyers that were in the Office of General Counsel, and also was staffed on matters relating to the global war on terror. Because of my um, litigation background, the agency was sort of looking to get closer relationships with the U.S. Attorney's Office in the Eastern District of Virginia. And that U.S. Attorney's Office, also known as the Rocket Docket, occasionally brings in people from other federal agencies to act as special assistant U.S. attorneys. I was selected 
through a consultation process to be one of those special AUSAs and ultimately got designated as a special AUSA at EDVA. And this sort of enhanced the relationship between CIA and the U.S. Attorney's Office at a time when there were a number of terrorism prosecutions going on through EDVA, including those that uh, implicated CIA information or other equities. Ultimately, um, after about a year, went back full time to CIA. But at that point, the Scooter Libby case was starting to heat up. As you may all recall, um, the uh, special prosecutor for the Scooter Libby case was Patrick Fitzgerald, who was charged with investigating um, whether or not the identity of a former uh, CIA officer undercover, uh, Valerie Plame, had been disclosed intentionally. Um, and so there was a criminal investigation. This ultimately culminated. Uh, in charges against Mr. Libby, who had been chief of staff and principal national security advisor to Vice President Dick Cheney for uh, essentially uh, making false statements to the FBI and committing perjury before the grand jury. Those were the allegations in the indictment. The reason why uh, there was a CIA representative, ultimately, namely me, to the Scooter Libby team and ultimate trial um, was because, number one, um, there were CIA witnesses that were implicated in the case and, and ultimately uh, who testified at trial. But number two, and frankly, more importantly, Mr. Libby's primary defense was what was termed a preoccupation defense. Mr. Libby had been charged with intentionally lying before the grand jury, intentionally lying to federal investigators, which are felonies. And uh, his defense was, listen, I, I didn't mean to do that. I didn't intend to, to lie because I was so preoccupied with these most important national security matters uh, and so I should be able to tell the jury uh, at trial, what were the most critical national security secrets facing the country uh, during that two, three year period, particularly right after 9-11? And thus, Mr. Libby put into play um, some of the most critical secrets uh, this country, frankly, has. And that prompted litigation uh, under what's called the Classified Information Procedures Act, uh, or SEPA which is a procedural mechanism to deal with classified information in criminal cases, federal criminal cases. My role was to act as the intelligence community uh, and White House coordinator for all the national security information that was being put into play and to work with the special counsel um, with respect to the litigation and the briefs and declarations, et cetera, um, as that were part of the filings that were that went to the court and were uh, highly top secret during that SEPA or Classified Information Procedures Act process. We went forward to trial. And again, as I sort of mentioned earlier, I worked with the special counsel team and dealing with CIA witnesses who needed to testify, as well as other witnesses within the national security establishment uh, that needed to testify. A after that trial, I was hooked and wanted to be a prosecutor full time after my experiences with that and with the Eastern District of Virginia. And um, it's a long story, but I wound up uh, getting a position over as a terrorism prosecutor at the Department of Justice in Washington. And for the next couple of years, prosecuted and tried high-profile terrorism cases uh, around the country, including the first homegrown terror cell uh, to be prosecuted in the United States. And then also I worked with prosecutors uh, at a U.S. Attorney's Office in, in Washington, D.C., to prosecute the uh, first Iraqi insurgent to be prosecuted in federal court. And then after doing that for about two years, I uh, applied for and got a position uh, with the, as you termed, Sovereign District of New York, commonly known as the Southern District of New York. It seems like you only work uh, in jurisdictions with nicknames, David. Uh, apparently so. And then moved back up to New York and, and you sort of went through uh, my experience in SDNY. But I 
worked on a number of uh, cases there, including several uh, high-profile white-collar cases uh, involving insider trading, offering fraud, Ponzi schemes, valuation fraud cases like uh, involved in the London Whale case and the Michael Balboa case, a uh, number of accounting fraud cases, including a, a large prosecution involving a company named the Tess, insider trading cases with respect to expert networks, uh, as you mentioned, Operation Perfect Hedge. And I also worked on uh, a number of international narcotics and national security matters. And then uh, after about a little over five years and spending most of my time in the securities and commodities fraud unit there, I wound up taking a partnership position um, uh, at another firm. And then uh, about a year and a half ago, joined Greenberg Trard. David, you've had a fascinating career, and I, I think you are sort of uniquely positioned, perhaps, to consult on shows like Billions. I know you've done some consulting work on other shows as well, but because you've sort of covered the landscape in terms of your your experience at CIA as a prosecutor in the Southern District of New York and in private practice, you really are an expert for uh, for a show to go to to make sure that they're getting it right. So, what we would like to do is pivot and talk to you a little bit about how your experience informs your work on the show, Billions. So, why don't you start by telling us, um, how did you come to be the technical advisor for the show and what exactly does that job entail? It's an interesting question. In, in or around, I think it was March of 2016, and I got an email uh, out of the blue from one of the assistants on the show um, saying they wanted to chat with me and, and uh, you know, could we could I give them a call and, and set up a meeting? I actually thought that it was a prank. And I've told the showrunners this before because uh, my friends and I at the Southern District uh, would occasionally play elaborate pranks on each other. And unfortunately, I had been uh, on the receiving end of one of the larger ones. So I thought this was in the vein of, of uh, a continuation of pranks on David Miller. I wound up, I was on a plane and I was getting this email through the Wi-Fi. When I got off the plane, I, I called this person and I had Googled her and, and noticed she had an IMDb page, but you know that didn't necessarily mean anything. Um, I have an IMDb page now and it means nothing. And so I, I called and, and spoke with her and she said, yeah, you know, we want to you know chat with you and, and uh, just get a little bit of background information and Maybe uh, you can chat with the showrunners and the writers. And I said, sure. And I still was skeptical and thought it was a prank. Set up a time to go down the following Friday, I think it was, to um, their offices in the, in the West Village. And, and I guess when I wrote down the address, I, I, I transposed the numbers, the address numbers on, on for the street address. And, and, I, and I show up and I'm looking at a bombed out building. And I remember standing there as I was cursing the names of certain friends of mine from the Southern District who I thought was behind this. And, and, and then realizing, well, wait a minute, maybe I, I transpose the numbers and I look across the street and sure enough, there's an office building there and I go and there's a production company and I go up and I'm like, okay, I should probably take this seriously. And sure enough, I walk in and the showrunners are there and the writers are there, you know, Brian Koppelman, David Levine and everybody else. And, uh, and, and we talked for a couple hours and I told them about some of my cases and some of the stories that I had and things that I had done while I had been at the U.S. Attorney's Office and, and in government generally. Uh, and we all got along very well. And when the meeting was over on the way out, Brian and David came up to me and they said they wanted to offer me a, a job as a technical advisor for the show. And uh, that was it. Oh, man, I have a great uh, prank uh, planned for Kurt now. I won't tell you what it's about, but it might follow <laughs> a similar fact pattern. I'll be on the lookout. 
Yeah. So as technical advisor, David, what do you, what do you do on set? You just hang out with movie stars all day or, or what are they, what are they asking yeah, you to do? It's tough work. It's tough work. <laughs> no, um, I, I have a variety of different roles. Um, so, so, you know, certainly I, I, I speak with and work with the writers and the showrunners and answering legal questions because they, I will tell you, they are very interested in getting this right and getting it accurate. Okay. And they work very hard to do so. Obviously, there's a storyline and there's a drama and there's, you know, only 50 some odd minutes per episode. And frankly, some of what we do as prosecutors and defense lawyers is pretty boring. So certainly people wouldn't want to be seeing that aspect on TV. But nevertheless, they, they want to get it right. And, and it, I've really been quite impressed by that. And, and that also translates over into the writing staff, uh, a number of whom are, are amazing people and, and some of whom are actually lawyers as well. And so I work with them in discussing, you know, so what the legal issues are and the framework of the storyline ideas that they have. Uh, I talk to them about my old cases. Uh, I talk to them. I answer questions about particular legal theories and sort of arcs that they have. Sometimes I also even make suggestions about stuff and, and come up with ideas for various aspects of sort of the legal plot line that they're developing. I then will get outlines and scripts and we'll review those. and. Um, will provide thoughts about, you know, particular legal issues. Uh, you know, look, again, I, I sort of recognize and it's like working with any other client because I consider them to be a very important client. Right. And, and I know that sometimes, you know, as lawyers, we might want to sort of say, well, you should always do. And, you know, I'm, I'm gesturing over to the right right now. But you recognize that from a business perspective or in this case, from a storyline perspective, that doesn't necessarily always work. So. At the same time, you don't want to flip all the way to the other side. I'm gesturing to the left right now. So you have to find something in the middle that obviously works, that, that's accurate, that's true to form, at the, but at the same time really helps develop the plot line. And so the, I'll say to them, look, the way it oftentimes goes is X. That won't necessarily work here. So I try to say, well, what about doing Y? And so I'll you know, make comments as I read for the outlines or, or the scripts, or then I go to meetings. Um, with the showrunners and, and the writers and the producers and talk about these issues. And then occasionally we'll go on set and I have been on set before and we'll, you know, work with, uh, answer questions from the, the directors or the, the assistant directors or the producers, um, work with the actors. Um, you reference being an extra. I, ha <laughs> yeah, I have been thrown, thrown in to two different episodes, episodes, I think 301 and 401, first as a, a sort of a, U.S. attorney uh, at a large U.S. attorney's conference, and then second, uh, holding a Bible as uh, the character Brian Connerty gets sworn in as U.S. attorney. So you can see me as I'm there and I shake his hand and all that jazz. So it's been a lot of fun, but it's been a great experience in, in, uh, in just getting to learn this industry and working with these amazing people, Brian, David, Adam Perlman, uh, every, you know, all the actors. Um, I mean, you have phenomenal actors on the show, whether it's Obviously, you know, Paul Giamatti or Damian Lewis or Maggie Sif, David Constable, Toby Moore, Condola Rashad, my, my good friend Malachi Weir, who plays Lonnie, who's an amazing actor, and, and a host of other actors and actresses on the show. So it's been a real uh, fantastic experience for me. And, uh, and, you know, I've been really fortunate to be able to work with the show. 
you started, David, by talking about how your IMDb page means nothing, but it sounds like you've got at least two credits on there. So I'd say a little bit more than nothing. And you know, Kurt and I have some, uh, you know, questions we want to, you know, ping off you regarding the show. But before we get into that, obviously, you know, Billions has been in production and and up into and including the pandemic. Uh, I know season five, the episodes that were already, you know, recorded and, and in production were put on hold halfway through the season. And then obviously there's a, it's been renewed for season six. So talk to us a little bit about the, the change in tact that the show's taken based on the pandemic? Well, I mean, there's there's certain things, obviously, I'm not able to talk about. I'll just say, as you saw um, last year, in the episodes that aired, I believe uh, there were seven episodes um, from season five that aired before everything shut down with the pandemic. So there's obviously another uh, few episodes left for season five, and then ultimately, um, you know, there will be a season six. The, The way these episodes are shot, and this is not just for billions, but for for other shows, uh, TV shows as well, is you, you know you have obviously a certain number of outlines and scripts that are developed, uh, and then at a certain point production begins. You may not have all the scripts in the can for the entire season before production begins, but then they start shooting an episode. And let's say an episode takes two weeks to shoot. Um, you have a director for that. Let's say episode one. Okay, you have a director for episode one who's working uh, on episode one. Um, before they start shooting, doing a variety of things, then you shoot episode one over, let's say, two weeks. And then that director for episode one is working on everything that you do after the, the episode is shot, including editing and other production related things. Meanwhile, the show has now started to shoot episode two with a different director for that particular episode and so on and so forth. And so there had been a number of episodes that had been shot and that were ready for release. Um, at the time they were aired last spring, but there were episodes that, you know, obviously hadn't yet aired and, and, uh, and the pandemic, of course, put a, uh, you know, shut everything down. So obviously Hollywood was no exception. I can't imagine the cast of Billions filming one of those uh, awful episodes via Zoom that we've seen in so many other <laughs> TV yeah, shows. But. Not happening, right? Yeah, we'll see. Uh, Kurt, I know we want to talk about some of the plot lines uh, uh, with David here. Yeah, absolutely. So, you know, obviously we've been watching the show for years. There are a lot of subplots, uh, but but a through line, at least for me, is the antagonistic um, but evolving relationship between the character Chuck Rhodes, uh, who is played by Paul Giamatti. Uh, in the first few seasons, he is the U.S. attorney who is pursuing Bobby Axelrod, who is played by Damian Lewis. And he, uh, he the U.S. attorney, actually gets the better of Axe a few times. Some have speculated that Chuck Rhodes' relentless pursuit of Axe uh, for potential insider trading violations, among other things, is based on or or maybe inspired by the pre-Barara Steve Cohen dynamic that played out somewhat publicly in the late 2000s and early 2010s. You don't have to tell us if, if that is true, David, but how much of the show is informed by real life and how much is just sort of, you know, embellished for a television audience? Well, I, I can't comment with respect to sort of your initial question, you know, about who inspired which characters. But as, as I said earlier, look, the, the showrunners and the writers and the producers um, do everything in their power to try to get this right, um, be accurate. They know their audience. Um, they want to be, you know, true to form. As I sort of referenced earlier, they they go to people like me um, and, and others uh, who, you know, have stories to tell and obviously talk about their cases. I will tell you that, 
you know, in the context of what I do as, you know, and I've been a technical advisor for seasons two all the way through now working on season six with them, that there's been more than one occasion where I've spoken with them about a particular case and some of the fact pattern for that case is then used as part of the legal plot line. So if your question is, are there uh, cases that sort of reflected um, in some of the episodes in Billion? general matter, obviously not literally and not, you know, every single general concept. The answer as a general matter is probably yes. Um, but that's, you know, not surprising. And that's why, you know, the, whether it's billions or any other show, um, there are technical advisors who provide information about how things work. So, you know, and it takes for people who know a little bit about the world that they're dealing with that's in the show it obviously enhances the realism for the viewer, makes it more likely that you're going to want to watch the show because it's, you know, it's as accurate as it can be. Yeah, and I tried to do some research ahead of our discussion today and rewatched a couple of episodes. And the phrase that stuck with me, uh, Ari Spiros, the in, early in the first season, is, is an SEC uh, attorney, I guess. And I, I'm trying to remember the phrase he used. He pulls a piece of paper out pretending to show acts uh, trading uh, of an inside nature, and he uses the phrase, one of my grunts was riding the Midas. And as Kurt knows, Midas is one of our acronym bingo answers <laughs> for ding, ding, ding. Uh, one of the uh, data analytics programs used by the SEC. So it does sound like these are all, these investigative techniques are, are being well-researched. Uh, I have not heard anyone on the staff refer to their colleagues as grunts before, uh, so maybe that... <laughs> Yeah, maybe that phrase is a good indication of kind of the plot line versus the the real life happening uh, in the show. Yeah, look, as I said, um, they they do talk to a lot of people, and you know, obviously, I, I'm one of the two technical advisors that they've had as a constant uh, over the seasons. There's it has been in the past me, and then somebody on the finance side um, who obviously advises them about trading and hedge fund stuff as, other, as as well as other financial issues. But, you know, in addition to getting information from me, they obviously talk to a lot of people uh, in the industry and, and they pick up a lot of the important lingo and terminology and you see it reflected in the scripts and dialogue. All right. So we want to talk about a, a specific uh, plot line that played out in season two and I mean, for those of for those listeners who have watched the show, you can't forget Ice Juice. Uh, so the Ice Juice plotline was about an IPO manipulation scheme, um, and at the center of the conflict, of course, were several of our main characters uh, in the series. Ice Juice is the hot new craze on the street. The company that makes it plans to go public, and of course, the Rhodes family gets involved, <laughs> including Rhodes Sr. as one of the investors who got in on the ground floor ahead of the IPO pop. Bobby Axelrod, Axe, discovers that the Rhodes family is heavily invested and uses his connections and a, a bit of theater to harm the company's reputation, resulting in a poor performing IPO. Talk to us a little bit about the cat and mouse between the characters. I mean, here we're focusing on on Chuck and Axe, um, but you know what elements are pulled from from real life? Maybe from your experiences or things you've observed. The showrunners, the writers, they do a lot of research. Once they come up with a a direction on a plot line. They really do their homework in figuring out uh, not only the lingo, but how 
things work. And, and that plot line, you know, obviously is no exception. Um, and so to the extent that, you know, there are issues um, that involve IPOs and how those work and um, then ultimately, you know, what's the interaction like with the SEC? And then to the extent that there's been malfeasance, um, like, you know, what, what happens with um, the SEC investigating and from the criminal angle, what's happening with the U.S. Attorney's Office and investigators like the FBI. And so really, un- they want to understand sort of the dynamics and how that cat and mouse game plays out. Um, and so there's a lot of conversations that go on, a lot of research that the writers and the, and the writers' uh, assistants are doing. Um, and then obviously I get involved in a lot of phone calls and discussions and meetings and um, you know thoughts with respect to outlines and scripts, how things would play out um, from sort of not only the, the regulatory process, right, um, in, in sort of the IPO regulatory process, but in that case, like how it would play out with um, the FBI investigating what they would be doing, the kinds of techniques that they would be using, um, whether or whether it's not the FBI or any other law enforcement agency, as well as what the prosecutors, the assistant U.S. attorneys uh, might be doing to sort of develop the case and in, in leading the investigation. And then ultimately, to the extent that they're you know, coordinating with other partners like the SEC or the CFTC, you know, how that works. And then ultimately culminating in potential charges uh, against the individuals, how the arrest might go down, what the techniques might be, and then, you know, the eventual prosecution and how that would work in the courtroom. And as you've seen in Billions, there are, particularly with some of the earlier seasons, a number of courtroom scenes. I work with the show and what goes on with various motions and how things play out in court and uh, even from down to the logistics about how things work in the courtroom and where people stand and what they're doing and what they're supposed to be saying. And so, you know, I've certainly been on set in, in helping out with that as well. But all that is to say that, again, it really goes back to um, how amazing it is to watch these guys work on the show um, in, in doing not only, you know, the research and understanding, you know, what's going on behind the scenes in finance and in law and law enforcement and prosecution. Uh, understanding how these things play out, but developing an amazing storyline every episode that is not only entertaining for the audience and intellectually stimulating and, you know, really develops a strong arc um, to keep viewers engaged throughout the season, but then also, you know, adheres to sort of the the legal and financial realities uh, of what is actually happening as a general matter um, to keep their viewership engaged. Sure. Do sometimes, you know, they take liberties on things, of course, and, and that's expected because, again, it's a it's a drama and we're talking about television. But at the same time, as I've noted throughout um, our discussion here, um, I've been so impressed with how um, accurate they try to keep things um, and, and how they're so absolutely committed um, to the realism of the world that, you know, they've they revolve the show around. But it's really all about. Uh, understanding how the world works and the issues that are present in these kinds of situations. It's it's a little bit of an understatement to say they add some theater, especially with the, uh, the vignette, Kurt, that you referenced. Uh, uh, for those with stronger stomachs regarding ice juice, uh, Axe, um, spoiler alert, uh, has some of his colleagues and, and straw men poison themselves when they drink from the, the ice juice cauldron on the day of the IPO, therefore setting the stock down. So I don't remember reading about that in the news. It was a fun part of that story. I mean, the whole the whole ice juice plot, which is fantastic, um, just because of sort of the 
the legal nuances of it, understanding sort of the securities fraud aspects of it, you know, so the law enforcement interplay with it, and then obviously acts finding out about certain things, and you sort of see some of that in flashbacks, and that's a that's a, a, a technique that's used in various episodes throughout the show, and then just sort of interweaving it with sort of the the human interest parts, and then the random sort of you know vomiting aspects of <laughs> ice juice. <laughs> um, but yeah, no, it's 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 a, it was a fantastic plot. And I'm sure, David, they they asked you to play one of the vomiting extras, and unfortunately, you couldn't make it into the office that day due to a, a client meeting or something like that. So, yeah, well, it also it, it didn't really play over with the other uh, extra roles that I had as uh, a U.S. attorney. So, <laughs> there you go. That's great. And, and one of the things that has really struck with me in watching the show, and, and something that I had always known about but never conceptualized the way the show presents it, is that interplay between the agencies. You know, we see this kind of who's going to take the case, who's going to bring the action, what order are they jockeying in together to go after Axe or, or to investigate Ice Juice. And so I'm going to try to rattle off all of the uh, uh, agencies and, and entities that are involved. We've got, obviously, the Southern District of New York. We also have some back and forth with the Eastern District of New York, Maine Justice here in Washington, the Department of Justice here in, in D.C., uh, the SEC, obviously, uh, the New York Attorney General's office, and I've got to give a shout out as a as a native of Western New York, uh, Buffalo Bob. Again, spoiler alert is is propped up and put in as governor at some point during the third or fourth season. So we've got the governor's office involved as well, and and that soup of all of those groups working together or in conflict really adds another layer to the show. And David, as we talked about up front with your background, you've served with some of those groups, not only those uh, with interesting nicknames. Do we see that kind of conflict playing out or that that coordination playing out between the agencies in practice? Absolutely. That was something that I noticed very early on in my experience with the show, that they were very interested in learning about the dynamics um, among different offices within the Department of Justice, the interaction between the Department of Justice and other agencies, uh, and then the interaction between federal and state law enforcement agencies. And so you see that sort of played out, like most notably... Um, and, and for those you know who are in New York and know sort of the New York law enforcement community or know U.S. attorneys' offices, know that there is a uh, let's just say a healthy level of competition between the United States Attorney's Office for the Southern District of New York and the U.S. Attorney's Office for the Eastern District of New York, and that rivalry um, is depicted quite well uh, in the show. And, and of course, it's something that you know the, the showrunners and the writers. Um, were interested in, learned about, asked about, and uh, is incorporated, obviously, in, in some of the earlier seasons. Th- there's also interesting dynamics between the U.S. Attorney's Office uh, in the Southern District uh, with Maine Justice in Washington. And, and frankly, that also reflects reality, um, that there's always interesting dynamics between Maine Justice and U.S. Attorney's Office sections. But there's much more coordination, as a general matter in the real world, uh, between most U.S. Attorney's Office and Maine Justice versus the Southern District of New York and Maine Justice. And mm-hmm. and that also is, I think, depicted well uh, in the show. And as you sort of noted, there's other agencies like the SEC, and there's you know some depiction of, of the parallel investigations that often go on uh, between the U.S. Attorney's Office uh, and the commission. And, uh, and then, you know, you mentioned the New York Attorney General's Office. For those who uh, have certainly seen some of the the later seasons that have aired already. You know that the show is focused more away from the U.S. Attorney's Office onto the New York Attorney General's Office, um, and so that's become a, a real focus of the show. Obviously, for those of you who've seen the later shows, and if not, and you don't want to know what I'm about to say, then you know 
certainly pause me right now. Of course, Chuck becomes the attorney general for the state of New York. And that's, you know, I think in, uh, you know, people have seen season four, you know that, and even for the episodes that have aired in season five. And so there's a there's a depiction of what goes on in, in the New York AG's office. And again, you know, I think, uh, as I've mentioned throughout our, our conversation today, uh, the show wants to get this stuff as accurate as possible. And so they've learned about the AG's office and spoken with people and spoken with me. I've had a lot of experience in, in dealing with the AG's office. And so, you know, again, it, there's a lot of agencies that are depicted, both those federal and state agencies and others that are depicted. And uh, and, and they try, uh, again, to be as accurate as possible in showing the dynamics between those agencies and how they play out in very complex and interesting cases. You know, I think perhaps we've saved the best question for, for last year. I'm not sure how it took this long, but we are we have to talk about Oren Bach, uh, the big law defense attorney played by Glenn Fleshler, who represents Bobby Axelrod, Axe Cap, and several of the employees at Axe Cap, in, including in season four, uh, he represented Wendy Rhodes, who's played by Maggie Siff. Now, as you would expect, the, the defense lawyer plays a critical role in the story. Uh, Bach's character has been in 32 episodes, and you know I'm sure David will agree with me that he really is the, the reluctant hero that the show is centered around. And, Classic take from Kurt. You, you know, yeah. all this other stuff is really just noise, right? This is a show about an SEC enforcement defense lawyer. <laughs> yeah, um, right, yeah, right, right, right. <laughs> you know, he's been in some, some really pivotal, some really interesting scenes. He seems uh, to bump in to U.S. Attorney Brian Connerty in strange places like pizza parlors and barbershops and, and bathrooms uh, throughout. And those are always entertaining scenes. But I'm wondering, David, how much influence do you have on the shape of this character? And who, who are they writing? How much are we sort of tweaking this to get the flavor of what it is actually like to be defense counsel on some of these matters? Well, look, I don't think that I had any specific influence on that character, but I, I will tell you, like I said before, um, they certainly uh, have asked me questions about, you know, particular cases or how, you know, you defend this kind of situation or that kind of situation. And again, a number of the people that work on the show are actually lawyers and so, uh, a couple of whom used to practice. And so there's, you know, there's there's some level of familiarity there. Um, but also, like I said, they do ask questions of me and other practitioners in both the criminal defense sphere as well as the, the civil securities enforcement sphere on how you handle certain situations. And so, you know, there's a certain uh, level of familiarity they have as a result of those conversations and developing characters as a general matter. Bach is uh, just a special character to begin with, <laughs> you know, so Oren um, is sort of almost like uh, an in-house counsel for acts, if you will, and uh, but dealing with, a, uh, dealing with a variety of issues. And so I, I, I don't think that there is, you know, any one person that Oren Bach is, is modeled on, but I think, um, you know, certainly a, a lot of what that character faces um, from a criminal defense standpoint and a securities enforcement standpoint are sometimes um, issues that uh, we regular practitioners in real life have to deal with. There's obviously some things that we don't have to deal with, as you pointed out, like, you know, sort of surprise meetings with uh, uh, assistant U.S. attorney and then U.S. attorney Brian Connery in, in pizza parlors and bathrooms when it comes to Oren Bach that, you know, of course, they have to portray him a certain way from a Hollywood perspective, but they also need him to, you know, sort of be doing certain things that are more typical of what a criminal defense lawyer might do, like, you know, 
<laughs> when there's conversations and Oren's like, listen, I'm going to leave the room now or whatever it might be. Yeah, that's very that's obviously more Hollywood fied. Right. But it's a recognition that lawyers can't necessarily be involved in certain conversations. But again, um, I mean, obviously, that's a fantastic character and it's like the perfect character to to represent Axe. Um, and it's sort of a, a, a wonderful dichotomy when you have like Axe and, and or on one side. Right. And, and, and then you have Wags on the other. So it it just works. The whole thing just works. Yeah, I agree completely. I love it. Reluctant hero leaving the room to avoid a discrediting conversation. I don't know, Kurt. <laughs> We're going to have to talk about that offline. <laughs> All right, Chris. You know what time it is. You want to kick it us is. off? Yeah, we're going to start our lightning round, David. So we have, for our listeners out there, we've prepared a list of billions-related either-or questions uh, that David has not been privy to. So we're looking for for your gut-check answer uh, on some of these. So uh, We'll we'll explore any shocking answers immediately after you respond. But, Kurt, why don't you kick it off? (laughs) All right. Here we go. Lightning round. Question number one. David. You get to appoint the next U.S. attorney for the Southern District of New York. You need a hard-nosed prosecutor who will get the job done. Chuck Rhodes. Sorry, go ahead. Hold on, hold on. I didn't even give you the choices here. (laughs) (laughs) Who do you pick, Chuck or Jock? (laughs) Oh, interesting. You know, I'm going to probably say Chuck just because from the early days – uh, when, uh, when, when Chuck was U S attorney in the earlier seasons, uh, I felt, uh, such a kinship to the office that I had to be team Chuck. Inevitably there's a team Chuck and a team ax developed throughout the seasons. And, uh, and, and obviously Jock as attorney general was, a was a special kind of AG, but he was no sort of, uh, gritty bare knuckle brawler fighter like Chuck Rhodes. So I, I I'm going to go with Chuck. That's probably the consensus answer. But uh, let's kick off question number two. David, you have to pick someone to lead the Southern District's famous Securities and Commodities Fraud Task Force. Who do you think has the right stuff? The staunch idealist in Brian Connerty or the tireless pragmatist in Kate Sacker? That's a really hard question, Uh, especially since uh, both characters evolve over the seasons, as you all have seen. Um, and, to the, and, and obviously, we all know what happened uh, at the end of season four and uh, with, uh, with good old Brian Connerty uh, in handcuffs. So I would say I was uh, kind of more with the, uh, the idealistic uh, Brian Connerty uh, in his early days. But then uh, as he took a, a turn for the worse, uh, then certainly uh, Kate Sacker seems like the most obvious uh, choice, although she was you know, for a period, chief of the criminal division uh, at the U.S. Attorney's Office under Chuck Rhodes. But uh, but I, I at the in the early days, I would say the Brian Connerty character. I will tell you, it has been fantastic working, as I noted earlier, um, with all of these actors um, and just talking about the U.S. Attorney actors, you know, from the earlier seasons, namely Paul Giamatti and Toby Moore and Condola Rashad and uh, Malachi Weir plays Lonnie. They're all unbelievable actors, and, and they were all very interested in trying to get the characters right. And, and I've, I've joked quite a bit with, uh, with Toby Moore, who plays Brian Connerty, as well as Malachi Weir, who plays Lonnie, uh, on how their characters sort of evolved and, and became much more Chuck-like um, than the idealistic 
uh, AUSAs that they started out as. Uh, I did note that I, I think uh, all my friends who might be listening to this and their former SDNY AUSAs would all say that they stayed like the true Brian Connerty and never went over uh, to the dark side. But nevertheless, uh, th- that's my answer. <laughs> All right. Well, as as we've mentioned, you have been on both sides of the table uh, and, and you're now back in private practice. Uh, one of the characters I think we mentioned in passing earlier was Ari Spiros, who was over at the SEC on the show. Of course, we also have uh, Oren Bach, who is the big law defense attorney. So now that you've been on both sides, what's more your style, David? Are you Oren Bach or Ari Spiros? Wow, is that is that my only choice? <laughs> yeah, well, uh, I you know I, I guess I'm gonna go with neither. But at the same time, uh, I, I do admire a, a lot of the qualities that Oren Bach has as a defense lawyer, a zealous advocate, and whatnot. Uh, Spiros, uh, particularly uh, in, in the later seasons, as he works at Axe Cap as chief compliance officer, can make a hell of a cup of coffee uh, and has tremendous wit, but. Um, I'm not sure he's as respected uh, within the Axe organization. I, I, I love the Ari Spiros character. I, I think that's a great character. And I enjoyed um, his character when he was working at the SEC, uh, you know, very sort of, you know, standing up a little bit to the Southern District. Uh, although it, it, that relationship in of itself, um, you know, was, was interesting, an interesting dynamic. I will say, as a general matter, the Southern District and the SEC New York regional office, as well as the CFTC New York office, um, work hand in hand and very well and very closely together, particularly, obviously, on securities and commodities fraud cases. Um, but Spiros's character was amazing. Uh, I, I can't say that I, I, I would consider myself to be akin to either one of them, but I, I certainly appreciate the qualities and characteristics of both. How's that for a, 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 an objective answer? <laughs> Appropriately hedged. Yeah, yeah I don't yeah. know if either or really applies, but... No, no, sorry. I, I don't think I answered that question directly. David, next question. You're moving into a role leading a hedge fund and you need to stand up a new fund underneath that with a portfolio manager. If you had your choice, who would you pick? The quant savant in Taylor Mason or Dollar Bill Stern, the cheapest man on Wall Street? Oh, my God. These are these are hard questions. You know, it's funny. Well, first of all, I, I love Dollar Bill's character, right? Like, who does not like Dollar Bill? Um, what a great character. Uh, Kelly O'Coin is an amazing actor, of course. And, and it's just amazing to watch that role. I think, though, it, in truth, I, I think that, you know, there certainly were some hedge funds, um, particularly when I was at the Southern District and we were investigating hedge funds for insider trading. There were there were a lot of characters that were like Dollar Bill, right? I, I do think that now there are a lot of hedge funds that are more focused on complex financial products and other instruments, including cryptocurrency, that probably do better with a Taylor character um, than a Dollar Bill character and the quant and the algo focus. Um, and so, uh, you know, assuming that we're, we're you know, not talking about uh, the need for really aggressive folks who are uh, going to go out and, and, and find the information and get it, um, to quote Wall Street. I, I, I probably at this point think that some uh, hedge funds are, are looking more to sort of the Taylor Mason kind of character from the quant algo perspective for highly complex financial products. But there's always going to be a place, always going to be a place for a dollar bill. There's that old school to new school comparison that they're representing there. That's great. 
Absolutely right. Okay, we got just a couple more for you here, David. Bear with us. Um, All right. Spoiler alert. uh, One of the recurring themes in Billions is this sort of tension or conflict between, uh, let's say, morality and legality and, and where you sort of draw that line. Let's say that, again, you're running a hedge fund, David. Are you looking for alpha or black edge? Hmm. It's a really good question, um, and I think it goes a little bit to your last question, right? Um, you know, look, I think there's there's a need for both, and um, you know, especially nowadays with you know, there's just obviously so many hedge funds out there. Um, there's so many people trying to get that small edge that uh, you know you need kind of a combination of folks you know who are really out there. And, and aggressively trying to gather the information and make it happen, as well as the quant folks who are doing what they need to do in trying to get, you know, this little bit of an edge. Um, but, you know, look, I I, I, I want to make clear, I, I think most of the professionals that are out there are, are doing, you know, things legally and doing what they need to be doing, doing the right thing. Have there been people at hedge funds who have broken the law and traded on inside information? Well, of course, um, that's why there's that's why there's the show Billions, right? Um, and, and that's, you know, uh, that was a key priority and focus of the U.S. Attorney's Office, particularly um, starting around 2008, 2009-ish uh, at the Southern District, um, going obviously through the present, but particularly for the five, six years after that point. And, and so, you know, I think there's obviously been a focus on insider information and sort of you know, dirty money and and uh, and and the focus by the U.S. Attorney's Office and the SEC on hedge funds, and appropriately so, given what happened, uh, particularly over the last decade and to fifteen years. You know, and so look, I, I I think that you know, hedge funds by and large are are doing things on the up and up, and um, trying obviously to maximize value for their investors. Um, but you certainly need a combination of uh, people who. Um, are aggressive, but also quantitatively focused. Final question for you, David. Imagining a world where uh, you have not had a great week at the office. Uh, you know, you're down on your luck. You've had huge losses. You know, Axe is mad at you. You're looking to one of the other folks in your office to to put you back on your feet. Do you turn to the individual who will help you intrinsically, or do you go for the guy who's going to support you hedonistically? Are you looking to reach out to Wendy to support your your mental state and get you back in in the ready, or are you going to party with Wags at the end of the week? That's a real tough choice because I don't think you could ever say no to partying with Wags. <laughs> Full stop. That's but, it. <laughs> but but I, I think there is actually tremendous value um, in what Wendy does, you know, for Axe and and for the people at Axe Capital. Everybody needs to be facing their inner demons, and Wendy obviously is a very important and critical cog in the wheel at Axe Capital and keeps people going, keeps people focused on what they're doing. So I think you go to Wendy, but there's no question that at the end of the week, you leave some time to party with Wags. (laughs) I love it. I love it. Yep. Awesome. Well, David, it's been a real pleasure speaking with you today. Thank you for talking us through some of the nuance and in, in how you approach your role as the technical advisor to, to Billions, as well as a full-time gig, uh, you know, representing, uh, you know, folks on, in the white-collar world, as well as helping build the practice at Greenberg Troy. So we really appreciate your time today. Thanks for joining us. No, thank you, Chris. Thank you, Kurt. It's been a pleasure. I've really enjoyed it. You guys have a great show. Thanks. 
Thanks for joining us for this episode of the Insecurities Podcast, and a special thanks to our guest, David Miller of Greenberg Trory. As always, we want to hear from you regarding your thoughts, comments, and topics for discussion on future episodes of Insecurities. Please use the hashtag InsecuritiesPod on Twitter or LinkedIn to join the conversation. You can find me at EkimoffCPA. And I'm at Enforce underscore Update. Be sure to subscribe, rate, and review the Insecurities Podcast wherever you listen. Be well, everyone, and we'll see you next time. Thanks for tuning in. Thanks for listening to Insecurities, a podcast from PLI, the Practicing Law Institute. PLI is a nonprofit provider of authoritative professional services training and continuing education. In an increasingly complex business environment where intricate corporate structures reign, Insecurities can help you make sense of it all. A special thanks goes to the producer of Insecurities, Daniel Pinitz, as well as hosts Chris Ekimoff and Kurt Wolf. For more information about PLI's SEC Institute, or to view hundreds of hours of fresh and relevant on-demand programming covering changes within the security sector, visit pli.edu membership and sign up for a privileged membership. These recorded materials are designed for educational purposes only. This podcast does not constitute legal, audit, tax, consulting, business, financial, investment, or other professional advice, and it does not create an attorney-client relationship. Please consult a qualified professional advisor before taking any action based on the information herein. Furthermore, the views and opinions expressed in this podcast are solely those of the individual participants. PLI, Troutman Pepper, and RSM do not make any representations or warranties, express or implied, regarding the contents of this podcast. Users of this podcast may save and use the podcast only for personal or other non-commercial educational purposes. No other use, including without limitation, reproduction, retransmission, or editing of this podcast may be made without the prior written permission from PLI.